Well, take your Bible and turn with me to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. Next time I'm in this pulpit, we're going to come back to Hebrews chapter 5 for our regular exposition through the book of Hebrews, but not today. There's one sermon that I've wanted to give, and I found sort of a week that I thought I can, I can, I can get it in there and preach a message that has been brewing in my heart, and I pray that it will be helpful for everyone here, if you're younger or if you're older, if you're married, if you're single, even children. I have specific applications for you as well as we go through the Word of God. I want all of you to hear and to benefit from the Word of God this afternoon. I'm going to preach Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, which really the title of my sermon is the text that I'm going to preach on. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Follow with me. I want to read all of Joshua 24, beginning in verse 14, and I'll just read 14 and 15 so that we can understand a little bit of the context. Here's the word of the Lord. Now, therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I believe that true reformation and true revival is absolutely vital for us in our day. I believe that true reformation and true revival revival is not only vital in our day, but I believe that it has to begin in the home. I think it begins in our hearts. I think it begins in our own family units. As we as family units strive to honor and worship and praise and glorify our God because he deserves it. When we talk about revival and reformation, I want to begin by stating outright that the reformation of a society and a civilization and a church and a city, I think it begins in the home. As the family goes, so goes a church. And as the church goes, so goes a nation. As a nation goes, so goes a civilization. I would be quick to affirm, I'm sure with all of you, if we would all raise our hands, we desperately need revival in our day. We desperately need revival. And yet I would also want to affirm that we must realize that in family worship, in domestic household godliness, the reformation and revival must begin. We could go on and on with why we believe that We need a revival and reformation in our day. We don't need to get lost in the headlines. There's plenty of that out there. But you know that we are living in times where murder is rampant and celebrated. Trafficking and abortion and all of the evils that go with that are celebrated and applauded at the highest of levels of society on down. Hostility and lying and deception has become commonplace. 
We hear of wars and rumors of wars. We're all aware of the arrogant, power-hungry world elites that are seeking to control the world. We are certainly aware of the spread of false, damning religion and false Christianity as well that is going all around the globe. We know that probably the fastest growing religion in our own nation and around the world is the religion of selfism, the religion where self is loved and embraced and believed in. We understand that the day and we're living has the disintegration of families that is skyrocketing. We see the divorce rate that is skyrocketing. We, we are aware of the demonic lies of the transgenderism movement, the LGBTQIA and all the other things that go with it. We know the rejection of the righteous judgment of God that is laughed at by people in our nation. They are making a bet with God that God is not going to judge them. They are making a bet that God is lying when he says he will repay the wicked to their face. And, and when we think about the times in which we're living and we think about the darkness in which we're living in and, and the society and the culture in which God has us in, I suppose we are left by asking a question, where in the world could we ever find a heaven on earth? Where, where can we find a, a mini paradise in the midst of such a polluted world? And I think the answer, in part, is found in a revival in family worship. William Perkins was a Puritan minister, and he said, The families where the service of family worship is performed is, as it were, a little church. Yes, the family where they practice family worship is a kind of paradise on earth. I want to lead us to Joshua 24 this afternoon as we take this concept and sort of flesh it out and apply it to all of us who are here this afternoon. I am convinced, I remember preaching the book of Joshua probably seven or eight years ago at this church in the Sunday worship service, and I am still convinced now, as I was then, that Joshua is a book for us for our day. Joshua is a book all about courage. It is a book all about fearlessness when you're living in fearful times. Joshua is a book on how you live with strength in God's power. It's a book about conquest. It's a book where God fulfills his promise by bringing his people Israel into the promised land. And when you read through the book of Joshua over and over, you're left with thinking, Wow, God is faithful. He is faithful. So, God has big plans. We ought to have courage. We ought to be strong. You and I ought not to fear. God is with his people. So, if we could modernize the message of Joshua, I might sum it up like this. Get up, obey God, be strong, And let God mightily work through you. That's the message for our day. And that's the message that Joshua brings to 
his people. Now, the whole book of Joshua, 24 chapters, is divided really into two halves. Joshua chapters 1 to 12 is all about the conquest of the land, how they're entering the land of Israel, and they're crossing the Jordan River, and they're taking city after city after city after city. Joshua 1 to 12, conquering the land. But then you have Joshua chapters 13 to 24, where you have dividing the land. So now that the whole nation is in the promised land, who's going to live where? You know, you might live in St. Louis City. You might live in Baldwin. You might live in St. Charles. You might live across the river in Illinois. You have places where you live. Well, same back then. They wanted to know where their allotment of land was going to be. When we look at Joshua chapter 23, just before where we are, Joshua 23, Joshua tells the people to be firm, to keep and do all that is written in the law. I see that in Joshua 23 verse 6. If you look at it with me, be very firm then to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law. That's good leadership. Know what God says and do it. Know what God says and do it. Verse 8, Joshua tells them, you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done this day. He warns them of exile. He warns them of discipline. If you disobey God, there are consequences. And then in chapters 14, really to the end of the chapter, Joshua gives them reminders of how good God is and warnings again of judgment. And discipline if you disobey. It's good leadership. Joshua 23 is a, is a great chapter where Joshua is giving a farewell address to the people of Israel. And then you come to chapter 24, which is where we are. It's the last chapter of the book. And it's an amazing chapter from this courageous and God-fearing leader. And he does two things publicly with the nation. In verses 1 to 13, Joshua leads the nation and he says, I want you to look back and see the faithfulness of God. And let's begin with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then let's remember how we were in Egypt and then how God brought us out of Egypt. And then we wandered in the wilderness and then God brought us into Canaan, the promised land. And then he gave us all of the cities and all the nations into our hand. Do you look back and see how faithful God is? But then you come to verse 14. Joshua transitions to the end of the book, and Joshua says in verses 14 to 28, not just look back, look ahead, and you need to serve God. It's one thing to look back and say, God has really been faithful, but yeah, now look ahead and say, make it your resolve to serve God and live for him with all of your might and all of your strength. I love the way Warren Wiersbe sums this up. He says, do you want to be strong in the Lord in the days in which we live? Then you need to believe what Joshua believed, that God is all-powerful, that God always keeps his promises, that God is always with you no matter what. And if you believe these things about God, you will be strong in the Lord. I love that. So we need this. We need this book. It is a book for us for our day. It gives courage into our, into our spine. It gives us boldness in the days in which we are living. And right in the middle of Joshua saying, look back and see how faithful God has been. And now let's look ahead 
and serve the Lord, right at that transition point is verse 15. Joshua says in Joshua 24, 15, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, you need to choose for yourself today whom you're going to serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me, here's good leadership, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I want to study this verse together. And it's my hope and prayer this afternoon. All week long, I've been putting this sermon together. I, want, I hope that today is a pastoral comfort for you, but I also hope that it's a pastoral charge to you as well. Or maybe to reword that, I hope that today is a sincere encouragement to your soul, but I want it to be a sober exhortation to your soul as well. So if you're taking notes, I want to expound this verse in its context And I want to give you three lessons for life, three lessons for life. And it is my prayer that you and I will not just write it down, that we will not just nod in affirmation, but that we will do what we hear from God's word. Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here's the first lesson that I want to give you. It's this family worship should be practiced in every home. The first lesson that I want to give you from this text is that family worship should be practiced in every home. And that's what Joshua says. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Right inside the front door of our house, we have a framed quote on the wall. And it's from a Puritan, and he said, Our homes should be little churches. Our homes should be governed by the Word of God. Think about that. That that whatever we do publicly in the worship of God, we ought to do privately in our smaller church at home. We ought to be praising the Savior. It ought to be a place where sin is hated. It ought to be a place where Christ is loved and cherished. It ought to be a place where singing fills the air. It ought to be a place where prayer takes place and priority. I believe that the head of the household, which is the father and the husband, or if not a Christian husband and father, the Christian parent, ought to take lead in this. And I believe, from my own experience, and I think by others as well, that this doesn't automatically happen in our lives. Family worship doesn't automatically happen. It actually takes initiative. It takes intentionality. It takes resolve. It takes deliberateness to see the importance of the daily habit that needs to be formed in every Christian household. What I want to do for a few minutes as we look at this first lesson here on how family worship ought to be practiced in every home. I want to give you two ways of sort of looking at this. I want to give us an exposition just for a quick minute. What is the meaning of the verse? And then I have a lot of application. The exposition. Let's fixate at the end of verse 15. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I want you to see there's a personal resolve As for me, don't miss that. Maybe you're here and you think, oh, I'm single. I'm not married. I don't have kids. It's just me in the house. Well, Joshua said, as for me, 
So maybe for you, it's not my household, but for me, it's a personal resolve. I will serve the Lord. As we look at the exposition, not only is there a personal resolve, but there's a domestic rule, my household. As for me and my house, Joshua is the leader of the house. Every man is the leader of the house. Every Christian husband and father is the head of the home. This is a domestic rule. The man is to be the pastor of the home. More on that in a little bit. There's a cheerful service. Look at verse 15. A cheerful service. As for me and my house, we will serve. It's a wonderful word that I'm going to define for us a little bit later in point three. It's a wonderful word. I want to serve God. A cheerful service. A joyful service. And there's also the covenant God that we are committed to. We will serve Jehovah. We will serve Yahweh, the covenant God, the one true and living God, the God who is faithful to his people. By the way, the early Greek translations add a phrase. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord because he is holy. Which is interesting that the early translations from Jewish leaders would add that phrase. Why? Because family worship never is contingent on how I feel. But family worship is always hanging on the reality that God is holy. So whether or not I feel like it, whether or not I've had a good day, whether or not I've had a miserable day and I feel like I've sinned a lot and I don't feel worthy, our God is holy and he ought to be worshiped. So let's, let's, let's leave the exposition for a moment, the meaning of the verse, and let's draw out some application for a little bit, some application. Now, men and women, boys and girls, children, all of you, there is application for Every one of us here, every one of us, from these words. When I say the first lesson is this, that family worship should be practiced in every home, here's what I mean. Here's the first what application. What is family worship? It is the gathering together of a family in a home regularly to worship God. It is the gathering together of the family regularly to worship God. It is the praise of God. It is the Father who is to take the lead, if the home has a Christian father and husband, that is. Well, who? Who should do family worship? Who who should be there? And I think the answer is everyone present. The husband, the wife, the kids, other people, neighbors, if you're having hospitality, if you have unbelievers visiting. We, we do something in our home called family worship. We know you're our neighbor and you live next door to us and you go to the Catholic church each week and you go to mass, but would you like to join us for our time of family worship? And you invite them to join you. Who should be present everyone? Well, third, where? Where do you do it? Well, you do it in your home. You do it daily on a regular basis. You do it as part of your family routine. Now, there might be a day that you're sick or a day that you're traveling or a day that something might come up. That happens. Of course it does. But yet, rarely do we go a day without eating in the home, physical food. Well, rarely ought there be a day that we go without spiritual feeding in the home as well. 
So next, how? How? What does it look like? If we're going to think about family worship, how does it take place? And I think there ought to be a minimum of three things that biblically take place every day in family worship. Number one, there ought to be singing. Singing. Psalm 118 says in verse 15 that the singing of songs is found in the tents of the righteous. I love that. It was said that in the early days of the church, as people would be out in the fields, they would hear which houses were Christian because they would hear the singing coming out the windows. Oh, that people, if they were walking their dog in their neighborhood and they think there's that Christian house again, they're singing hymns and they can hear it through the window. But not only is there singing, number two, there ought to be Bible instruction. Bible instruction. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And these things teach them diligently to your children. Third, there ought to be prayers as well. Jeremiah 10.25 pronounces a curse on the family that does not call upon God. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says that we are to pray continually. So family worship doesn't have to be fancy. It's simple. Sing, read the word, and pray. Why? Why do we do this? Why is family worship important? Let me give you a couple of reasons, and I want to begin with the first, because it's the most important. It's this. God is worthy. Family worship is vital and essential because God deserves to be worshipped. If you've got a large household, a small household, an older household, a younger household, whatever your sphere may be, God is worthy and deserving of praise in your household. Number two, another reason why we should do family worship is for the souls of our children. Church family, we know this and we're taught the word regularly on this, but our children whom we love so much are born Rebels. They are born God haters. And on top of that, they're not able to come to God unless God draws them. They need to be born again. And how does God do that birthing work? It's not through a great dad who gives all the toys to the kids. It's not through a great mom who might teach all the kids perfectly. He works primarily through the word of God as the spirit works with his word through people like us. As we give that to our kids. Oh, we want our soul, the souls of our children to be saved. Third, another reason why we do family worship, it's your duty. I believe it's your duty to be obedient to God and discharge your responsibility in the home. Men, especially to lead in this with your wives and your children. One of our daughters used to say regularly when, when we would ask, why do we do family worship? So that we will teach our children and they'll teach their children and they'll teach their children and so that the posterity, generations to come, will practice family worship as we set the example in our home for our children, then they can keep carrying it on. Another reason why we do family worship is to present the gospel of Christ in our home every day. 
every day. This is one of the greatest evangelism opportunities in a household for dads and moms to gather with the children as the word of God is read and taught and songs are sung and prayers are offered. And we say, let's be reminded of the grace of God. And let's be reminded of the sinfulness of man. And let's be reminded of the hell that we deserve. And let's be reminded of the great mercy of God that we can repent and believe all by his grace. And that we have the privilege to live for the glory of God. Now, some brief objections. I know when we think about these applications of family worship, I hear frequently, and I hear it online in presenting some of this stuff there, objections to family worship. Let me give you a few. The most common is, I don't have time. Which would make sense from a non-believer. But for someone who's an heir of eternity, for a child of heaven to say, I don't have time, To lead my family in the worship of God does not make sense. Another objection that I hear, I'm not good enough. Jeff, you're the seminary trained one, but I'm not not good enough. Maybe I'm a new believer. I don't know my Bible very well. Well, here is one of the reasons why we have these books that we've purchased, the Family Worship Bible Guide. We have four copies here. We would love to give you helpful commentaries and questions on every chapter of the Bible. You can learn. You can grow. It's not about you being good enough. It's about you being faithful. And we all grow in what God calls us to do. Another objection. I've waited too long. I'm embarrassed to start now. I haven't done it for five years, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years. I haven't done it. Forget what lies behind. Start right here and say, family, please forgive me for my neglect of this. Let me start today and let's serve God together. Another objection that I hear, it's just going to be awkward. It's going to be weird. We haven't had this culture of talking about the things of God in the home. It's just going to be a little awkward. It's, we haven't done it before. It's just going to be weird. But the more that you do it, the more that it will become common. Another, more in this time in which we live, we're hardly ever together all the time. What what if hardly all of us are in the home together at the same time? Well, then you as the father of the home and the husband can make and protect and find that time if it's early morning or if it's late at night. Or you can gather most of the family that you can. And if the older children come back, perhaps from work or from a sporting event later, then perhaps you can meet with them individually and minister to their souls. A father might say, my children just won't come. They won't participate in these things. To which we would say to a Christian father, if he had that objection, well, your duty to obey God is not dependent on how you think people will respond. You're the head of your home. Sometimes teenagers might say, I'm not going to come to family worship. And the father might say to the son, son, I love you. Daughter, I love you. And you know what? Here I have, I've been feeding you physically daily for your whole life. But if you're not going to eat our spiritual food, maybe we ought to withhold physical food from you for a while. Would you please come and gather with us for family worship 
for the time of spiritual feeding. Samuel Davies, one, one, uh, one open-air preacher from a few generations ago, said, My brothers, I want you to consider family worship not merely as a duty imposed upon you by God, but your greatest privilege granted by divine grace. It's not meant to say, fathers, you've got to do this. It's look at the privilege that you have by divine grace to be the resident in-home pastor of your family. I also want you to hear what Lig Duncan said. He said, family worship ought to be led by fathers or other heads of the families. Maybe there's a family where there's no husband, and so the Christian mother or the Christian wife can lead in that way, and that is entirely appropriate. To establish a God-centered home, promoting worship in all of life and the members of the whole household, and preparation for public worship. Family worship has a wonderful blessing of preparing a family for the corporate gathering, even on Sunday as well. I want to give more applications to those who are single and the children in just a minute, but pause with me and let me speak a word to all of the men who are here for a moment. I believe that Joshua reveals the whole book of Joshua, all 24 chapters, but certainly 1 Corinthians adds it in our Savior's example. We are in desperate need of strong men. We need men in the church. We need men in our day. And I am so thankful for the godly men of God that are here. We want men who are like Christ. We, we need men who lead with courage. The Bible calls us to be men who protect women, men who protect children, men who protect the weak. We need to be men who work hard and provide well for our families. God calls us to die to laziness as men, and God calls us to die to worldliness. In fact, the greatest of men are those who help their wives thrive. They help their wives thrive. I believe that God would want us to be men who are dead to the world, men who are dead to sin, men who are dead to gaming, men who are dead to pornography, and men who are dead to earthly mindedness. None of those things should mark men of God as a habit of life. We need men who lead on their knees in prayer. We want men who lead in daily Bible reading and conversation in the home. We want men who lead in tender, exclusive passion and love of their wives and their wives alone. We need men who lead in the humble asking for forgiveness and the generous, immediate granting of forgiveness when it is asked. We need men who lead in spontaneous family, corporate worship, and prayer to God. We need men who lead in fearless risk-taking. We need God-fearing men who love Christ and shun the world. We need that. Our world needs that. And this is why, at Christ Fellowship, we, 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 we are so committed to the teaching and the training and the discipling and the equipping of men. 
Because men are the leaders of the household. We disciple men. We have the Christ Fellowship Catechism that we provide for men to lead in teaching in the home. We have the 2 o'clock Family Bible Hour, the equipping hour to learn theology. We provide the Family Worship Bible Guide for men to have in the home. All to supply and equip men to lead as God calls them to be the pastor at home. But maybe you're here today and you're hearing all of this and you read Joshua 24, 15, and maybe you're here reading this and you think, I'm single. I'm not married. I haven't been married or I am no longer married. It's just me in my house with no one else. Is there any application for me? I'm glad you asked. I have a few. Number one, if you're single here today, you are your own family unit. You're your own family unit. And so how do you apply family worship? You worship God daily in your own home. You worship him daily and privately in your own home. That's why in the introduction to the family worship Bible guide, it not only says it's a family worship Bible guide, but it's also used for private devotions as well. I love that. So if you're single here and you haven't gotten one of those books, come up afterward and take one. Maybe you're single here. I want you to hear this. You can gather with other believers for Bible study and prayer and worship together. You can have time in the word and time in prayer and time in fellowship with others during the week. You can have folks over to your home and you can practice family worship as you invite others over and have hospitality. You can join with some of the families of the church here and observe how they do family worship and and enjoy that fellowship together. Another way, singles, that you can benefit from and actually apply this family worship is you can speak a word to the Christ Fellowship Bible Church kids when you see them, and you can encourage their attendance in their household family worship. You can encourage them to pay attention when they're having family worship. You can encourage them to give application to what they hear in family worship. Another way that you can... Apply this if you're here and you're single as you can pray for the families of Christ Fellowship to faithfully obey God in this. But you know what? With all of that, whether it's one or two of you or five or seven or more of you, the point is not the family size. Because guess what? We don't even know Joshua's family size. The point is not the family size. The point is the heart condition. That's the point. It's not the size of your household, but the focus of your heart. And I love how Joshua said in verse 15, as for me, as for me. Boys and girls, I want you to look at me for a sec. Give me your attention. Boys and girls in the pew, I want you to know that Charles Spurgeon was a pastor who lived a couple hundred years ago in London. He said this, children, if you have a godly father and children, if you have a godly mother, the best way of life that you can possibly have for yourself, listen, is to follow the road that your father and your mother are teaching you. 
If you have a Christian parent, boys and girls, learn from them, watch them, observe them. And children, I want to give you three simple lessons. It's real easy. All boys and girls, I want you to hear this. Number one, don't despise Bible teaching. Don't despise it. Don't think lightly of it, but enjoy Bible teaching. Number two, boys and girls, pray for your Bible teachers. That might be your dad and mom. It might be Pastor Jeff. It might be the catechism teachers. It might be others who are teaching you the word. Pray for them by name. Number three, boys and girls, don't receive God's word in vain. You hear a lot of it, but don't receive it in vain. Do something with it. Trust in the Lord Jesus and follow him with all of your heart. We look at Joshua 24, 15, and we see his example. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Back to your notes that you're taking. What is the first lesson that we glean from our passage? Family worship should be practiced in every home. And now after all this, if you're still thinking, Jeff, I'm still confused and I got a question. Then come seek out one of the elders and we would be delighted to serve you in any way we can. A second, a second lesson. If you're taking notes, here's the second lesson that I want to give you from Joshua 24, and it's this for all of us. Number two, remember that God called you out in order to bring you in. God called you out in order to bring you in. You think, what does that mean? Well, in Joshua 24, Joshua tells the people, fear the Lord and serve him and put away the gods that your fathers worshipped in the land of Egypt and serve the Lord. In other words, he's been saying all along in these chapters, remember how God brought you out of Egypt? You were in bondage there. God brought you out in order to bring you in to the promised land. I want to read for you a clear verse in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 23 is a parallel here. Moses says this in Deuteronomy 6:23 that the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household. God brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us the land which he swore to our fathers. Israel, remember? Remember how we were slaves of Pharaoh? It was a cruel bondage. Remember how how we were making those bricks and it was hard and it was tough and it was slavery? Remember that bondage that we could not be freed by our own power? And yet God, by his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, he delivered us in order to bring us in to the promised land. Joshua says, put away the gods that your fathers have worshipped and serve the Lord. Church family, similarly, hear this, hear this clear parallel. If you're a Christian here today, God, in a similar way, has elected you out of this world and he has elected you unto himself. 
Just like for Israel, he called you out of Egypt and he brought you to the promised land. Well, as a believer, God has chosen you out of this world and he has brought you into union with himself. Now, here are the benefits of this for a minute. Church family, Christian, you have been called out of bondage to sin You have been called out of slavery and the fear of death. You have been called out of the inability to please God and do any spiritual good. You've been called out of spiritual death. You've been called out of Satan's kingdom. You've been called out of paganism. You've been called out of worldliness. You've been called out of falsehoods in this world. And God brought you into Union with himself. You're an heir of heaven. You're a son of God. You have the kingdom of Christ. He brought you to have a life of service and obedience to him. What a God that you were in bondage. But he brought you to himself. This is the very point that Paul makes in Colossians chapter 1. And verse 13, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Get this, he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you see that there? He called you out from darkness and into his marvelous light. In Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 8, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. Friend, has this happened to you? Has God called you out to bring you to himself? Has God called you out from the domain of the devil and he's brought you into an eternal relationship with himself? Has that happened to you? Imagine, if we ponder this and illustrate it, imagine if you were living in Zimbabwe One out of four children, if my studies are right, in this country, they live without a parent. Many of them have been orphaned. Many of them have been abandoned. Imagine that someone comes to an orphanage in Zimbabwe, and they want to adopt a child. And so they come to this orphanage with the heart of adopting a child, and they point the finger at that one little child, and they say, I want that child. I want him. And And they do all the legal proceedings and all the paperwork and all that needs to be done and the meeting and greeting with the child. Well, they they wouldn't open the door to the orphanage and say, well, you're free. Go. Live your life. But that doesn't make sense. That That wouldn't happen. Rather, the loving parent who said, I want that child, would would take that child into his home, into his household, with his name and his benefits and the privileges and the love and the care and provisions and compassion. He brings you out to bring you in. That's 
what God has done. Joshua has said in chapter 24, you need to fear the Lord because he brought you out of Egypt and he brought you into the promised land. You're his. Christian, in a similar way, ponder the initiative of God. Ponder with me the call of God. Ponder with me the sovereign election of God. That he chose us, Ephesians 1, 4, before the foundation of the world. It's an uninfluenced election. It is a wooing election. His heart is drawn to his people. And we are drawn to him by the working of a spirit. It is a transforming election where we become holy as we follow him who has called us. It is a secure election that he chooses us all the way for glory. If God has elected you, if if God has chosen you, if he's called you out from darkness and brought you into light, then we ought to walk worthy of that call. Let me remind you of Ephesians 4 verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In Philippians 1.27, Paul says the same thing. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. I want you to walk worthy. Later on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says the same thing. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you to his own eternal kingdom and glory. You know, if we were to put a theological phrase around this concept that we're talking about, it's called biblical separation. That if God elected you out from this world and he united you to himself, we are to be separate from the world. Now, we live in the world. You can't can't leave the world. But we need to remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. After all, God is the one who called us out and he brings us unto himself So don't be bound together with unbelievers. What partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What is a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. We are called out of the world and we must live separate from the world. Very quickly, let me just draw this point to a close with with our um, doctrinal statement. You could go on the church website and you could find 14 pages typed of what our church teaches on all the theological doctrines. Under the heading of the doctrine of salvation, you've got election, predestination, and the call of God and repentance and faith. At the very end of that section is a section on separation. We teach... That separation from sin is clearly called throughout the Old and New Testaments and that the scriptures clearly indicate that in the last days, apostasy and worldliness will increase. 
We teach that out of deep gratitude for the undeserved grace of God granted to us, and because our glorious God is so worthy of our total consecration, all of the saved should live in such a manner so as to demonstrate our adoring love to God and not bring reproach on our Savior. Now listen carefully to the next two brief paragraphs in our, in our doctrinal statement. We teach that separation from all religious apostasy and worldly and sinful practices is commanded to us by God. Next paragraph. We teach that believers should be separated unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And we affirm that the Christian life is a life of obedient righteousness that reflects the teaching of the Beatitudes in a continual pursuit of holiness. Church family, what's the second lesson? God called you out to bring you in. Just like he took Israel and he called him out of Egypt and he brought him into the promised land. Christian, hallelujah, we can say God has sovereignly called me out of the kingdom of darkness. And he has brought me to himself. May it be that we here as an assembly of believers, that we would uphold the holiness of God. It's why we preach our duty to be holy, to love what is holy. It's why we practice church discipline. And if you think, "Ah, I don't know that we practice church discipline, good. That means that there shouldn't be everybody knowing all the sins that's going on. Why? Because it ought to be one-on-one, as Matthew 18 says. And then if there's unrepentance, another brother goes. And if there's unrepentance, you tell the church. And then if there is still no repentance, you treat them as an unbeliever. This is why we are so committed to maintaining a holy church that must be distinct from the world. You know what? In closing, on this point, careful, not in closing, on this point, I think Satan laughs at a worldly church. I think if he was to create a masterpiece in a city... To create false doctrine, it would be a church that might even have Bibles in the pews, but they look and act and talk just like the world. And that's not Christianity. God has called us out to bring us into himself. Let me give you a third lesson very quickly, a third lesson. So the first lesson, the, the duty of family worship that should be practiced by every Christian home. The second lesson, God has called you out in order to bring you in. Let me give you the third lesson. It's this, uphold the priority and the delight of worshiping God. Uphold the priority and the delight of worshiping God. And really what this point is, it's a little word study on that word serve. We will serve the Lord. What does it mean to serve the Lord? What does that mean to serve God? I think Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 is perhaps one of the greatest definitions. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. But sacrifices are dead, Paul. Except for you and your Christian life. A living 
and a holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. When Joshua says, if you have your Bible open to Joshua 24, 15, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's Joshua's way in the Hebrew of saying, God, you demand exclusive commitment. Personal worship, family worship, and corporate worship. Interestingly, In this chapter alone, the key word that occurs 18 times in Joshua 24 is the word serve. It's the key word of the whole section. And Deuteronomy uses the word to speak of a worshipful service that is closely related to bowing down before God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, the word serving God is the idea of covenantally committing yourself to God alone. In Psalm 2, we worship God with awestruck reverence. In Psalm 100, this kind of service to God should be done with gladness and singing. So what does Joshua mean when he says, as for me and my house, we will serve? What does it mean to serve the Lord? It's this. It is a humility and a commitment and cheerful reverence for God. It's a life of worship. As for me and my household, we're going to worship God. We're going to live lives of total consecration to God. Again, Warren Wearsby, in his commentary, he says, to serve the Lord here, it means to fear God. It means to obey God. It means to worship only Him. If we're going to serve the Lord, it means that we love our God and we fix our heart upon him and we obey him. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Because we want to. I think a fitting way to reflect on this is how Paul brings this out in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 17, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, meaning you were in bondage to your sin, now you have become slaves to the one whom you obey. Thanks be to God that, verse 17 here, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching with which you were committed. And you have been freed from your sin, and now you are slaves of righteousness. Uphold the priority of worshiping God. I mean, think about that for a sec. Is your life marked by upholding the priority of worshiping God? Boys and girls, you can do this. Husbands and wives, you can do this. Young and old, you can do this. Employed and retired, you can do this. Men and women who work for God, who worship for God, who prioritize God, who give all of your life to God, your money, your time, your health, 
your leisure, your children, your employment. We, we, we want to be those who fear God, not fearing man. Do we live lives of worshipful service to God? You know, all of life can be given to God. You know that verse in 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. But did you know how practical that is? Let me just help you with this and you can run with it. So maybe your work has you typing at a computer. Maybe that could be a reminder for you to read God's truth that has been given to you in his word. Maybe you're making phone calls throughout the day. Let that be a reminder for you to cry out to heaven's throne with boldness and confidence. Maybe in the early morning you get dressed in your work clothes to head out the door and go to your place of employment. Well, Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Maybe you, like me, enjoy drinking coffee. You like sipping tea. Remember to drink from Christ, the living water who satisfies. Maybe you're driving home after a long day's work. Remember in Psalm 119, my eye anticipates the night watches so that I might meditate on your word. And on and on you could go throughout your day with activities, everyday activities that can be a pointer to living your life as a sacrifice to God. May God help us to be people who love Christ for his beauty. May God help us to be people who bow before our God as the creator. May God help us to be those who serve God now in this life so that we will be fit to serve him in the next. Because if worshiping God, listen carefully, if worshiping God is boring to you now, then heaven would be hell for you. The story is told of a Puritan pastor. His name is John Preston. He was on his dying bed. And he said to a friend, he said, I will soon change my location. But I will not change my company. Meaning, even as a sick man, Confined to a bed, he had had communion with the living God. He, he had worshipped God with his, with his family and his heart, with his loved ones in his church. He said, my location will be different, but my companion will not. May that be true of us, that we would keep up good company with God and worship. So that when the time comes for us to die, we would say, I'll change locations, but I, I won't change my company. I want to end with a story that I read years ago about a Puritan congregation in Massachusetts. And they were talking about membership in the church and covenanting together as believers to serve the Lord together because they wanted to live all of their lives for the glory of God. And that included family worship. It it included corporate worship. It included private worship. They just wanted to live their lives for God's glory like us. They came up with a membership covenant commitment. It's quite short. And it's quite brief, but I want to read it for you. 
because I resonate with it and I pray that we all will together. This Puritan congregation said, We covenant as a church in Dorchester, Massachusetts, to reform our families, engaging ourselves to a conscientious care to set up and maintain the worship of God in our homes. We also covenant to walk in our homes with unhypocritical hearts. We resolve to faithfully obey the God-given duties at home in seeking to educate and instruct and charge our little ones and our whole households to seek and to keep the ways of the Lord. They covenanted together. Reformation and revival. It begins in the home. And through a reformation in the home, it will affect the church. And through the reformation of a church, it will affect a city. And through the reformation of a city, it can affect a nation. May God be pleased to start right here in our midst that we would be like Joshua and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. May it be our heart resolve, every single one of us here this afternoon, that we would say with Joshua, as for me, my personal resolve. For those of us who are husbands and fathers and heads of the home, that we would also then say, as for me and my household, let us serve the Lord. Let us live lives of worship to you, O God. May we lift up King Jesus. May we lift high the cross to worship him and love him and serve him with our all as long as you give us breath. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.